This week you've probably uh, seen or paid attention that the, uh, the playoffs for Major League Baseball has begun. Some of you care, some of you probably don't care. Uh, as you probably know, I'm a huge fan of baseball. This is my favorite time of the year, and yes, I know the game is slow and it's complicated, but it is the best game that there is, and I defy any one of you who disagrees with me. I'll talk about uh, some other time how it's such a unique game. But I'm loving it. Both of my favorite teams are in the playoffs, which makes it all the more exciting. My favorite team in the American League is the Boston Red Sox. Go Sox. They're currently tied 1-1 to with the Tampa Bay Rays in a series of five. But even to get into the playoffs, they beat the mighty Yankees. And so no matter what happens from here, uh, we're good. <laughs> we have that. And then my favorite team in the National League, I'm sorry to say, is the Atlanta Braves. I know. Who are currently tied one-to-one with your Milwaukee Brewers, uh, also in a best of five. So in this case, I'm sorry I am root, root, rooting against the home team. I'm sorry. But anyway, it's been a good week. I've stayed up late each night watching the games and uh, all this excitement of playoff baseball. And I was reminded this week, actually through pre- prepping for this sermon, that one of the games, one of baseball's best all-time hitters, the guy who he won two triple crown He's a 17-time All-Star. He's the last man to ever complete an entire season with a batting average over 400. It's Hall of Famer Ted Williams. He died in 2002 at the age of 83, but I was reminded this week that even right now, at this moment, his body is frozen in a cryonics lab in Scottsdale, Arizona. So weird. I don't know if you remember this story. If you heard of it, there was actually great controversy because when he died, uh, it was said that Ted's own wishes was that his body would be cremated and his ashes spread over the Florida Keys. But then two of his kids insisted that he had signed a pact with them to have their bodies cryogenically frozen after death. And the older daughter sued the other two siblings. It was, it was, a, real, it was a real mess. But as I speak, Ted Williams' body is stored in a stainless steel tank in Arizona at the cool temperature of negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit. And for a cool fee of $200,000, you can join him. (laughs) You can join Ted and the 170 other patients and 90 pets, I heard, who are being preserved at sub-zero temperatures with the hopes that one day, somehow, some way, science will find a way to bring them back from the dead. It's It's a very bizarre story, but it's It's very revealing, isn't it? It's revealing about a distinct characteristic in our world today and even in our own hearts. And that is our aversion to death and our longing for something, anything that can overcome it. Right? It's part of our experience. We have an aversion to death. The Alcor Life Extension Foundation, where Ted Williams is housed, they don't consider their patients to be dead but rather in a suspended, in-between state of life. Can't even call them dead. We have an aversion to death, and some people would pay anything. We would pay anything. I would pay anything if it would somehow mean that death could be overcome. I read uh, this quote from a guy named Arthur Kaplan. He's a professor of bioethics at NYU, and he was asked about the validity of cryonics. He said, the whole thing is too science fiction-y. I still believe that no one will be able to do what they wish, which is to bring back the dead. It is just not doable. Well, friends, what if I told you that not only it is doable, 
But it has been done already in history. What if I told you that it is doable, but it doesn't cost $200,000? It's actually free to you, to me. What if I told you that it's doable, but obviously not through cryonics, but through Christ and through Christ alone? Today in our preaching series on the Apostles' Creed we've entitled Rooted, we are talking about what one commentator says is the most astounding claim in all of human history. We're talking about what perhaps can have the greatest impact on how we live day to day as Christians, as those who profess this creed, because it roots us in a hope, a living hope that can even overcome death. And today we're talking about what it means to profess faith in Jesus Christ, who descended into hell and on the third day rose again from the dead. We are talking about what it means to believe in the Son resurrected. And truly, there is no more astounding claim in the creed than this. So it's an honor. It's a privilege to attend to this. And so would you stand for the reading of God's word? You can pull it back up on your phones or you can just listen. The reading today is from the book of Acts. We've been doing most of these out of Hebrews so far, but I couldn't make it work out of Hebrews today. So we go to Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 36. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out... All, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit, both of which shine the spotlight on Jesus. So we don't have to wonder who God is because he has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus. So, Lord, help me then to proclaim not myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with myself as your servant for Jesus' sake. And I pray that the God who said that light shine out of darkness would shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Should be seated, please. 
So we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed, and we are in the section of the Creed that is focused on the person and work of God the Son. God made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so far we looked at the uniqueness of the Son, that is what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We looked at the incarnation of the Son, what it means to believe that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We looked last week at the humiliation of the Son, what it means to believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And today, we get to look at the resurrection of the Son of God. What it means to believe that he descended into hell and on the third day rose again from the dead. Now, you might be thinking, because I was thinking it, why does his descent into hell belong in the resurrection sermon, right? Shouldn't it be with the humiliation sermon? Because how much lower can you sink into the depths of human experience than to descend all the way down to hell? That has to be the epitome of suffering and humiliation. Some of you may also be asking, what does it even mean that he descended into hell in the first place? Do we actually believe that? Is this part of the deal? That line is definitely the most controversial and the most debated line in the Apostles' Creed. It doesn't appear until later on, actually, until the fourth, around the 4th century. And many people have struggled to understand what it means, why it even belongs in the creed. Some people leave it out. Some people alter it. I know some people who just skip over it when they come to that section in the creed. But brothers and sisters, my goal today is to convince you that it most certainly belongs in the creed. And in fact, it's vital. The reformer John Calvin said, if if it is left out, if this is left out, much of the benefit of Christ's death will be lost. Friends, furthermore, I want to convince you that his descent into hell is not the last act of his death. It is, in fact, the first act of his resurrection. It is resurrection act one. So last week we talked about what happened on Good Friday. Today we're talking about what happened on that day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, what is called Holy Saturday and also what happened on Easter Sunday itself. So the way I want you to think about it is he descended into hell. That's resurrection act one. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. This is resurrection act two. So those will be our two points. Let's start with resurrection act one. He descended into hell. All right, buckle up for a little while, okay? We're going to explain this. What does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? Well, for one, it means that he really died. He really died. He was crucified. He was dead. He he was buried. His body was placed in Joseph's tomb, and his spirit departed his body. And this is important because if the soul does not depart from the body, then you could question whether or not he actually died, right? But this is saying Jesus was not merely unconscious. He didn't just appear to be dead. He was really, truly dead. And then just like us, his soul separated from his body. This is the Bible's understanding of death, the separation of a a soul from its body. So on the one hand, it means he really died. But the next question is, well, where did his soul go? (laughs) Right? And there is a, a, a plethora of opinions here. It's complicated partly by the fact that there are two different words for hell used in the Bible. So one is the word Hades which simply means the realm of the dead. 
It's the unseen world. It's the unseen underworld of the dead where all, all departed spirits go after they leave the body. Hades is used, that's also synonymous with the Hebrew word for Sheol. And you see it in our passage in, when Peter quotes it, when he quotes Psalm 16 in his sermon, verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that is the place of the dead. And the other word for hell in the Bible is Gehenna, which is this, actually it was an actual place. It was a steaming pile of trash outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was like the city's landfill and it was always burning. And Jesus frequently used that as an illustration of the fiery place of punishment for those who are eternally separated from God. So those are the two words. question is, which is it? Where did Jesus go? And friends, I think it's accurate to say that Jesus descended into Hades, not Gehenna. For one, there is no biblical basis for saying that Jesus entered into the eternal torment of Gehenna. Even if we like the theological idea that he took the suffering of hell so that we wouldn't have to. That is, that's a lovely sentiment, but it, is, it has no biblical basis. <laughs> and besides, that's exactly what we believe happened on the cross, right? When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's hell. That was like hell. That's God forsakenness. That is separation from God as the father turned his face away from his son. That was hell enough for Jesus. So it doesn't have any biblical basis, but furthermore, it would contradict what the Bible actually does say. For instance, how could Jesus say it is finished on the cross? Meaning that his work of paying for our sins was complete. It was done. It's finished. If he still had to go down into hell and suffer more for us. So it goes beyond the scriptures to say that Jesus descended into the eternal fires of Gehenna. But it's in perfect keeping with the, with the scriptural mindset to believe that his soul really did depart from his body. He really did die. And it descended into Hades, that is the realm of the dead. Still with me? All right. Next question then is, what in the world is Jesus doing there? What's Jesus doing in Hades? Well, for one, the scriptures tell us that he was turning Hades into paradise. As he said to the thief on the cross, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, we believe that for this thief and for all who died trusting in God's Messiah, Jesus has turned Hades into a paradise. A place of joy, a place of delight, a place of rest, a place where we await the final chapter of redemption, that is the resurrection of our bodies and the reuniting of our souls to our bodies. So he's turned it into paradise, but there's also this cryptic uh, verse, or set of verses in 1 Peter chapter 3. Maybe you read it sometime. And it tells us what Jesus was actually doing in Hades. It says that Jesus also went down there to proclaim a message. So then the question is, well, what is the message and to whom is he speaking this message? And some people have come to believe that Jesus went down to Hades to proclaim the message of the gospel to human spirits, that is, people who were imprisoned in Hades. It's like he was offering a second chance to evil people who had died before his own coming, for his death. But that can't be the case, because the scriptures are clear that the time for responding in faith to the gospel is not in that life, but in this life. Right? 
So the better interpretation is that Jesus was not speaking to human spirits. He was actually speaking to evil spirits. And the message he was set to proclaim was a message of victory over all the spiritual forces of darkness. All right, put it all together. And this is what this creed means when it says this. This is what happened. On the day between his death and his resurrection, Jesus descended into Hades and he turned it into paradise for the saints who were waiting for him. And he announced his victory over the evil spirits in prison there, that he had overcome them through his death and through his forthcoming resurrection. And it makes sense of pieces of our Bible. That's why Philippians 2 can say that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and where? Under the earth. And that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why his descent into hell belongs as the first act of resurrection because it's the first proclamation of his victory. You've got to kind of imagine the scene. These evil spirits seeing Jesus descending into the realm of the dead, into Hades. They probably thought they won. It's as if Jesus said, you thought you won by killing me, but guess what? I'm not here to stay. It was prophesied ahead of time that God will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will he let the Holy One see corruption. I'm going back up. <laughs> Because God is going to raise my body from the dead, but I'm, and I'm going to tell the whole world about my victory, but I want you to, to know it first. This is Resurrection Act 1. And brothers and sisters, what it means for us, to decide, besides all these technical details of what's going on, what it means for us is that just like Jesus came down into every aspect of our human life, right? he was born like us, he suffered like us, this means so also Jesus came down into every aspect of human death. He really died. His body was really buried. His soul really descended into the realm of the dead. And brothers and sisters, he did all this so that there would be absolutely no aspect of human life or death where he has not already gone ahead of you, where he is not present with you. So that nothing, neither death nor life, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because wherever Jesus goes, he transforms it with his presence. He doesn't leave it the same. He sanctifies it. Friends, what that means for you and me, if you are in Christ, there is nowhere you can go where Christ has not already been and made it holy. The kids are, are, are naturally afraid of basements, right? If you have some, you know. And I get it. Basements are dark and spidery and creepy. And there's way too many movies about scary basements. Remember Home Alone? The furnace, like, scaring you. But every house we have lived in as a family has had a basement. And every one of our kids has been terrified of that basement. And every one of our kids has developed the same strategy to handle it. <laughs> and that is, before they would go down there by themselves, they would ask my wife, April, or I to go down ahead of them. Turn every light on. And I mean every light. The stairway. The living room, the bedroom, the bathroom, whatever's down there, every single light. Brothers and sisters, this is what our Christ has done for us. He went down ahead of us and he turned on every light. So that when it is our time to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid. He's with us. He's flooded Hades with light. He has turned it into, par into paradise. As the Puritan poet Richard Baxter once wrote, I love this, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. 
Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. That's resurrection act one. He descended into hell. Next, secondly, resurrection act two. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, how in the world do I sum up the significance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in just a few minutes here without going too long in the sermon? It's nearly impossible. Every preacher has the fear every Easter Sunday, like, how do I communicate how amazing this is, how wonderful this is? Well, we're going to have to be incredibly selective with our remaining time. And therefore, I cannot spend much time on the fact of the resurrection. That is, how do we know that it actually happened the way the Bible says it did? And this is a really important question, and because normally in our world, people who die don't come back from the dead. We understand that. And it's completely reasonable to have doubts. In fact, some of the first disciples had doubts about the resurrection, namely, doubting Thomas, right? So you're not alone in your doubts or your questions. And for every Easter Sunday service I've ever preached at resurrection, I've done some portion on the evidences that make Jesus' resurrection not only plausible, but actually probable. From the empty tomb to the eyewitness accounts, hundreds of people, to the expectations of the people, the fact that no one was expecting resurrection, therefore they wouldn't make it up, to the explosive growth of the early church. Friends, to the fact that it is Peter whose sermon we just read in Acts chapter 2. Peter, who just a few weeks before denied even knowing Jesus and was completely immersed and engrossed in shame. There's absolutely no possible way that he is now risking his life to boldly preach the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead unless something dramatic has happened, unless he has encountered the risen Lord himself. So I say to you, if these, in, if these evidences are of interest to you, if they are troubling to you, I commend some of our past sermons to you. They're all online, or we can go get coffee and talk about it too. But, but suffice to say for now, when it comes to the fact of the resurrection, I cannot say it better than J.I. Packer did, who I read this week. He says it really is harder to disbelieve the resurrection than to accept it. It's much harder. In the face of the evidence, it is the only reasonable thing a person can do. But what I want to focus on is what our passage focuses on. It's what Peter's sermon focuses on in this Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. And that is this, that the resurrection is the vindication of everything Jesus ever said or did. The resurrection is the confirmation that Jesus is who he said he is. That's, Paul's, that's Peter's whole sermon. His whole argument is that if Jesus is still dead, then you have the right to question everything he ever claimed about himself. But if he is alive from the dead, then this is proof. This is confirmation. This is vindication of who he really is. The fact is, there were lots of great leaders who came before Jesus. There were some who even claimed to be God's Messiah, but what they all have in common is that they are still in their graves. Except Jesus. And that changes everything. Look at some of Peter's arguments. In verse 24, Peter says that Jesus' resurrection is confirmation of his sinless life. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What does that mean? Well, remember, death is a penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. Friends, we were not created to die. It only exists 
because we fell into sin, and it only holds those who are sinners. But death could not hold Jesus. Why? Because he was sinless. Because he was the spotless Lamb of God. It is confirmation of his perfect life. It's credited to us by faith. Furthermore, along that same logic, it is confirmation of the forgiveness of our sins. Because if Jesus was confirmed to be sinless, then it is clear that he did not, did not die for his own sins, but for the sins of others, for ours. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says that the resurrection is proof that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was acceptable to God. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In verse 27, Peter also says that Jesus' resurrection is the confirmation that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the world's true king, great David's greater son. This is where Peter quotes from that psalm that King David wrote about overcoming death. Verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. But Peter says, wait, this, this psalm couldn't possibly have been ultimately about King David. Because, verse 29, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, Peter says, David was a prophet. And he was speaking not about himself, but about King Jesus. He interprets it for us in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, all of, and of that we are all witnesses. See what he's saying. The resurrection is the confirmation that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the one who could even overcome death and, and now is ruling the world from the right hand of God. And in verse 36, Peter brings this sermon to the grand conclusion. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What he's saying is the resurrection is the confirmation that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of sinners. He's the conqueror of death. He is both Lord and Christ. It's become really common, we know it, in our, in our U.S. government experience, that when someone is seeking a high and important office, like Supreme Court judge, justice, they have to go through confirmation hearings, right? And these hearings have become, have received a lot of media attention in recent years. But the idea is that candidates for high office, they need to be put under the microscope. They need to be scrutinized for everything they've said and done to make sure they are qualified and suited for this office. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is Jesus' confirmation hearing. It is God's confirmation that Christ and Christ alone is fit for the highest office there is of both Lord and Christ. He is everything that he said he was. And what this means for us, friends, is that you can believe every word that comes from Jesus' mouth because his resurrection proves it. How refreshing is that? To be able to take someone in power at their word. To know that what he says is absolutely true. To know then 
When he says that he became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God, that's true. That you stand in Christ completely clean in the presence of God. The confirmation is in him, not in you. And when he says that he has removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, he remembers them no more, that you in Christ are completely forgiven, like no exceptions. And to know when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, you can believe it. You can take it to the bank. In Christ, not even death can kill you. In Christ, death cannot separate you from God's love. Listen, we don't have to freeze our bodies to try and live forever. We just have to let God unfreeze our hearts to make it alive, to put our whole trust in his life, death, and resurrection for us. But then in the end, as the Apostle Paul says, we will join in the great song. The death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray. Let's ask God to help us. Oh Lord, our our world is bitterly acquainted with death in these days. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who have died from illness. Lord, therefore, we thank you for this bit of the creed that we can confess that is explosive in its meaning. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way through death because you descended into Hades for us and you turned on the light. Because you came back from the dead and you have promised that all those who believe in you will live forever. That not even death can destroy us. What a gift. Lord, therefore, help us to live as a people who have this living hope in the center of our being, like an anchor for the soul. Give us this living hope always. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We pray in his name. Amen.